listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and creedal Christian thought. I'm Brendan here with... Skyler. Skyler. What'd you do to your finger, man? Got a got a nice little blue band-aid I, there. Yeah, I probably a paper cut. I actually don't know. Mm, one of those things. Yeah, I have no idea what happened. You just you just put a band-aid on your finger, just to bring out your inner child. <laughs> like you actually don't have anything. You just wanted a band-aid. Yeah, to make my heart better. Yeah, Is that- <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's. Maybe maybe that's I should have tried it for that reason. Yeah. How many other band aids do you have on right now? Just <laughs> cover them up with uh, your sleeves. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> anyway, How have you been? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, goodness. Yeah. We we are full on into the renovation project downstairs, so that's pretty crazy in our church fellowship hall. So. Uh, there's a lot to do there. Yeah. We're just counting on our church folk to rise to the occasion and make it happen. <laughs> so we'll see. Do you know when the building was originally built? I, by chance? So the number that's in my head is 1903. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, this whole thing could go down. Any, uh, <laughs> yeah, so the history of this building, I don't know if I shared this, but this was an LDS meeting house. Um, for, I don't know. I, I mean, I think it was built in 1903 and then, um, the first Baptist church of Provo purchased this property. I think I'm just shooting from the top of my head here, but I want to say that we purchased this building in 1960, either 64 or 68. So it had a good 60 years of being the grand view neighborhood meeting house. And then, uh, yeah, we we purchased it, and it, it's been interesting uncovering the the um, fellowship hall because you know the people. I don't know when this happened. I'm guessing 80s, 90s, or something like that. They put the kind of just brown paneling all over and put a drop in ceiling that uh, didn't necessarily need to be there. And so we found out that um, you know the original way that the room was put together was with these really tall ceilings. It's going to be a really nice space once we're done with it. But we started noticing on one side of the room in the basement, there was uh, the, the, we, we uncovered the old paint and the old paint uh, started in one place a little bit higher than uh, everywhere else in the room. And when I say a little bit higher, I mean probably like three feet higher or so. And then we found a door that's like just floating, you know, relative to the, the uh, rest of the fellowship hall. And so there apparently used to be a built up floor over there. And then it got me to thinking how modern LDS meeting houses have the, the uh, culture center, you know, with yeah. usually the gymnasium and a separate stage. And it just made me wonder, you know, I, I think that that's what that was, that it, that used to be a stage and the fellowship hall used to be set up as kind of a culture center sort of thing. But I, wow. I have no idea. It's just interesting to, uncover all that stuff and think about what it used to look like yeah you know, that, 80 um, years ago you should write it down just to since you have the opportunity now yeah uh, yeah so this this guy joseph f smith would have been president of the lds church yeah when this building was built yeah maybe he came to this building that's amazing Who knows? Well, i know he came to provo 
yeah uh to tell people who to vote for and other things so. i do i mean i just yeah i wonder i wonder how many wards there were even at that period of time yeah. in provo you know i, I just it just I, been yeah it's a good it, question it would be interesting to, yeah to think through the history of this building even in terms of what what role it had in because it's got to be one of the older meeting houses yeah in provo you know for sure so, because Provo was established in 1867, mm-hmm. um, I can't remember what number this word was, but anywho. Yeah, uh, so our building in Magna was dedicated by Brigham Young originally wow. yeah. in the 1870s, I believe. That's wild. Sometime when we have Jason on, I'll have to ask him about that just yep. to get it down. Yeah. Because he did research into the history of that building. Yeah. And, uh, of course, a very Augustinian view, right? Oh, yeah. It's, it's a metaphor for the valley. Of course, of course. Yeah, you take it out from the inside. That's Yeah, of course. Right? Of course. I, I always love that Augustinian vision I got. Really, it's biblical vision, but Augustine mm-hmm. really got it with the city of God, city of man, and how, you know, it's not that um, saints replace sinners in mm-hmm. this world. It's that the sinners become the saints. Yep, yep. In Christ, and that the really the the idea of the <clears throat> cosmic temple of the one true God, the triune God, um, is built with the rocks from all the pagan temples, and oh, it's just so so cool. Yep. So anyway, yeah. It, what about you? Anything exciting this week? Uh, you know, reading. Just, you know, reading some stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. A lot of stuff. Yeah. yeah, a lot of Joseph F. Smith. Yeah, we'll see how much we can get to today. That's that's true. I just noticed this this lesson is going to be the week of uh, Thanksgiving. So, happy Thanksgiving, everybody! Yeah, if you're listening, and of course, I guess it'll post a little bit ahead of time. But uh, yeah, what what do you do for Thanksgiving? Work. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have a bagel after work. Or do stuff. Yeah, at the workplace. Are you staying in town? Yeah, we're we're gonna just have. Several people from our church over to our house and make a party of it. Awesome, be a good time. Awesome, well, we smoke hope. some turkey. Yes. So, wow. So really, yeah, yeah. It's a game changer. Once you smoke turkey, you'll never cook a turkey any other way. Well, it's just I. I am not a turkey fan. I'm not. Just don't like it. Yeah, and it's uh, too dry. You know, generally, it's dry. Yeah. You know, just not it's worth my time or money mm-hmm. or effort or energy or taste buds or stomach yeah. space or anything like that. But when you smoke a turkey, it comes out flavorful, like just bursting with flavor, and it comes out moist and juicy, and it's it's just a game changer. It's amazing. Well, with some advice, right, yeah. for the listeners? Oh, yeah. I'll have to bring you some smoked turkey. I, I would to love try to, to try remember. some because, yeah, yeah. I, I typically just, is there ham? Or uh-huh. Maybe I'll just eat so cereal. Good, man. Oh. So good. <laughs> okay. I think we're going to do like four or five turkeys this year. Wow. Not like full turkeys. We did like the uh, half half turkeys or whatever it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, know <laughs> I don't know what all it's missing, but yeah. anyway. Mostly turkey breasts is, is what you smoke, so it's awesome. good stuff. Cool. Well, let's get into it. We're going to be looking it. at uh, first and second Peter today, and this curriculum will be covered from november 20th to the 26th of 2023 we are almost there man only about a month left um so yeah it's it's been crazy at the start of the year i had my doubts that we would get one episode up every week and somehow we managed so 
we're making it happen. Yes. Uh, but uh, yeah, so this is, of course, um, our pattern to walk through the LDS Come Follow Me Sunday School curriculum and uh, then to use that to break down some deeper LDS thought and draw in some comparison in the way that we as credo Christians would approach the interpretation of these different passages of scripture that are being dealt with in the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum. And the reason we're doing it this format this year is because the LDS church is studying through the New Testament, and that gives us an opportunity to interact with our scripture and compare and contrast the way that they use our scripture for uh, their doctrinal purposes versus the way that we would approach interpreting those various scriptures ourselves. And so starting next year, as we announced last week, we're not going to be doing the Come Follow Me curriculum for the that the, for next year, but instead we're going to start off the year and I don't even know, I haven't lined it, we, we haven't outlined it out, but we're going to take several weeks to walk through the Nicene Creed and just cover how we um, work through creedal formations uh, or formulations and uh, really go to the different relevant scripture passages that the people who developed these creeds were using um, to show that the authority for them was not their own thoughts, whatever they wanted those to be, but was the scriptures, and they were working themselves from the scriptures to understand what right doctrine should be within God's church. And so we're going to take several weeks to cover through that, and as we go, we will be, of course, notating key differences theologically between uh, Credo Christianity and the LDS faith, so the the thrust of this podcast will continue to be this compare and contrast sort of a deal. Uh, and then after we walk through that, uh, we don't know yet. You know, we've thrown out some different ideas of just working through various general conference talks. We've thrown out ideas of working through very important books within uh, LDS thought and just interacting with those from a credo Christian perspective. Christianity um, and liberalism by yeah, Machen. Yep. We've talked about working through that one as well. So yeah, if, uh, if you got any feedback on what would be interesting or helpful to you, we'd love to hear it. Um, Distinctive Christianity at gmail.com and just, uh, yeah, shoot, shoot us a message and let us know what would be helpful for you. But let's get into the curriculum this week. First, second Peter is what they're covering. And we start off with the, uh, of course, always typical admonition to the teacher. Remember that your purpose is to teach people, not just present a lesson. So I, I don't, I don't understand that? how, you know, presenting a lesson is not teaching people. But anyway, as you read through the epistles of Peter, think of individual class members. What principles? What principles will help them build their faith? Them build their faith. Yep. Yep. Um, okay, and then I've got the typical invite sharing as well. Write the headings first, second Peter on the board. Give the class members time to review the epistles and invite them to write under these headings words or phrases that they found meaningful. Then use the list to invite uh, people to share their insights. So and, Yeah, and yeah. that's apparently teaching people, not presenting a lesson. Yep. I just yep. wonder why they call it Sunday school at all. Yeah, yeah, very true. Um, it's more just about expressing your individual experiences with the text over the week than it is learning something true and objective from God's word. And of course, I know that they would say that you learn from 
other people's experiences. Uh, but the purpose is not to, again, convey an objective truth that's in God's word that ought to be embraced by everyone who's listening or everyone who's there. But instead, it's just this open-ended time of sharing. And I doubt that there's um, I doubt there's very much admonishment going on. Um, you know, I, I could be wrong on that. That could be a, some, an assumption, but just based on the way that they encourage and invite sharing, um, I'd be surprised if in these classes people ever kind of rebuke or correct one another for the things that they shared of like, eh, that's not quite accurate what you just said there. You actually should believe things this way. I would imagine that it's more just an open sharing time. Write in if I'm wrong. Um, I'd love to know actually what does go on in, in these sorts of things. And it's been a while since Skylar's been in these classes as well yep. at this point in time. Mm-hmm. So, um, Things change fast in the Elias faith, so you know could be totally different. How many years has it been since you've been in, in one of these classes? Four or uh, five? I, no, maybe eleven. Eleven years. So yeah, it's it's been a while. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Because you were kind of stepping out of the Elias faith even before you came into um, Orthodox Christianity. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, then you get into the Teach the Doctrine section, and we have four major sections this week, and we're going to really hone in on just two of them. And so I'm going to walk through these, and the main two sections that we're going to cover are the one, uh, the, the big, big one with an, an LDS belief system is this uh, spiritual world, um, spiritual realm, work for the dead, the things that kind of happen, the progression that happens in the spiritual realm uh, even after we die. And then the second uh, big concept is, again, related, but just this progression into our divine nature. Um, So those are kind of the two places that we're going to land for the most part here. But the first section is covering just 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9, 2, 19 to 24, 3, 14 to 17, and 4, 12 to 19. So you can see there that he they're just pulling out a number of passages within 1 Peter. And one of the main themes in 1 Peter is helping Christians consider how they ought to endure difficulties and sufferings. And, you know, Peter's writing to a group of Christians that are under a lot of persecution at the that particular point in time. And so he is writing to encourage them on how they hold fast in the midst of these trials. And so the Come Follow Me curriculum has a subtitle, I Can Find Joy During Times of Trial and Suffering. And it just encourages class members to have a conversation thinking about somebody who is experiencing a trial and giving people time to write a letter to that person with truths that they think will encourage that person. So uh, we've talked a little bit about trials and sufferings and how that all fits into an LDS system and even some of the troubles there of whether or not the righteous really do suffer in an LDS worldview or whether or not if you really boil things down, any measure of suffering is because of some sort of unrighteousness in your life or some lesson that you're meant to learn um, and things like that. So uh, yeah, we'll get into some of that actually later on in First Peter chapter 3 when we think about the suffering of Jesus. But then you get into First Peter, the second subsection, First Peter 1, 13 to 20 and 2, uh, 1 to 12, and the subtitle here is, We are called to be, quote, the people of God, end quote. 
And it says Peter's teachings in these verses can be an inspiring reminder of how the Lord sees us, his people, and what he expects of us. Perhaps you could invite class members to search these verses, looking for descriptions of what it means to be the people of God. And it ends saying, what does this teach us about the way God feels about us and how he wants us to live? Um, so, yeah, just an encouragement to think about, I guess, what it means to be the people of God. Right. And in that paragraph, I just, when they say the Lord, singular, which one? When they say God, singular, which one? Yep, yep. Is it three? Is it the Heavenly Father? Is it Jesus? Yeah, and, and what does it mean to be the people of God? Yeah, that With too. the definite article there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if all people are God's children... In, in that sense, we're all God's people. So who, like, what what yeah, is the dividing line that's going on there? Yeah. And then you get into the third subsection, which will be one that we're going to focus on a little bit more, and that's First Peter 3, 18 to 20, and 4 to 6. I'll go ahead and read those ones for us just because we're going to end up landing there a little bit more. But 3, 18 to 20 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And then it goes on from there to uh, make a connection to baptism and uh, I, th- I think it's worthwhile to read that, even though I don't reference it. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And then they uh, proof text also chapter 4, verse 6, which says, For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Okay, and so if you know an LDS way of thinking, you know where they're going to go with this one. Uh, The subtitle is, The Gospel is Preached to the Dead so they can be judged justly. And then they say, the first epistle of Peter contains one of the few references in the Bible to Jesus Christ's visit to the spirit world after his death, an event that modern revelation helps us understand more fully. To help class members deepen their understanding of the spirit world, you can invite them to read the following scriptures and write what they learn on the board. And then it gives a number of scriptures there. Some of them are from the uh, Book of Mormon, you got the Doctrine and Covenants there. Yeah, 138, which will be a key one for today. Uh huh. And then they say, see also additional resources, which we'll go and read that here in just a sec. But they ask the question, why is it important to know about the Savior's visit to the spirit world? How does this knowledge affect the way we feel about God and his plan of salvation? So the conversation is very much going to be centered around the significance of the spirit world. And for any evangelical listeners who may be just learning about um, LDS culture and the sorts of things that are valued in an LDS way of thought, um, I cannot even tell you how many times this conversation comes up with LDS people as they're working through things and even people who are considering leaving the LDS faith. This is often one of the biggest hangups for them is letting go of some of this idea of 
the spirit world and the ability for families to be together there and to do work for people who are there in the spirit world and so on and so forth. Um, so here's the quote that they reference in the additional resources. This is from uh, Christofferson, and the subtitle to give is The Work of Redeeming the Dead Testifies of Christ's Mission. And Todd Christofferson taught this. What is the destiny of the countless billions who have lived and died with no knowledge of Jesus? With the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ has come the understanding of how the unbaptized dead are redeemed and how God can be a perfect, just God and also a merciful God. While yet in life, Jesus prophesied that he would also preach to the dead. Peter tells us this happened in the interval between the Savior's crucifixion and resurrection. President Joseph S. Smith witnessed a vision that the Savior visited the spirit world. Our anxiety to redeem the dead and the time and resources we put behind that commitment are, above all, an expression of our witness concerning Jesus Christ. It constitutes a powerful, uh, as it constitutes as a powerful, as powerful a statement as we can make concerning His divine character and mission. It testifies first of Christ's resurrection, second of the infinite reach of His atonement, third that He is the sole source of salvation, fourth that He has established the conditions for salvation, and fifth that He will come again. Okay, um, one important note on that is just how in that not 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 on the quote, but just back into the main text in the section, they do say uh, that, you know, Peter is one of the only places in the Bible that talks about Jesus Christ as the spirit world. And then notice this, this is so critical. They say an event that modern revelation helps us understand more fully. Uh, you know, we got into this in the baptism for the dead video, but it is a trait of um, new religious movements that come off of Christianity to take some of the historically least clear portions of the Bible and to kind of provide in a Gnostic way the the interpretation of that text. And um, it's just fascinating how you have so much clear doctrine that is being taught throughout First Peter that does very clearly correlate with the rest of the Bible. And then you've got these few texts that um, scholars for centuries have wrestled with and and this is one of the few texts that they're going to cover in their yearly curriculum um and that's because they you need modern revelation to to be able to come up with the things that they believe as regards this text if you just deal with the text in its original context and unto itself you're never going to end up where they end up with it you need this apparent you know additional revelation so right we'll get into some of that even within that passage, right? Yeah. So they take the most clear part of that passage, which is about how Christ suffered for sins, right? Christ also suffered once for sins. Yep. <laughs> once for sins. And they don't focus on it at all. Yeah, that's right. And they take the obscure and make it the center of the whole thing. Yep, yep. And uh, it, I just thought it was interesting that even where it is in part a message about sh suffering akin to Jesus, the uniqueness of Jesus's suffering. Yep. Right. Is yep. not communicated at all. Right. The, the suffering Christ is unique in definitive yep, right? That's right. in this passage. That's, right. that's the main point. Right. Yep. And it's his victory 
over evil. I like um, Shriner's point on this. Let me just read this really quick. Proud of you for quoting my, my guy over there. I, did, I didn't even realize I had Thank a book you. by him. Appreciate yeah. it. Um, the, the phrase he focuses the once for all hapax right uh, the suffering of Christ was unique and definitive um, in, in that he offered himself as sin as a sin offering once for all and he, he of course this is falling at some interesting analysis the distinctiveness of Christ's sacrifice is featured here for even though believers suffer they do not suffer for the sins of others nor does their suffering constitute a sacrifice for the sins of others nor was peter suggesting here that the suffering of believers is the means by which unbelievers are brought near to god the uniqueness of christ's death continues to be emphasized for he suffered on the cross as the unrighteous for or, sorry the righteous for the unrighteous mm-hmm. therefore his suffering was undeserved it's unique right and so since christ suffered as the sinless one his suffering is unique. The uniqueness of Christ is not what's emphasized. And instead, as we're going to get more into, notice even the heading, right? Jesus, the work of redeeming the dead. Whose work? Yep. And of course, this is evidence of what? Christ's divine character, according to the Christofferson quote, but who's also doing this work? Yep, that's right. Who, so who what is, is it up, also? Who is it up to to save these people? Right. Ultimately. Right. And if it's about his divine character and he's just the example of what we do, yeah. or a paradigm of what we do in the temple, then the uniqueness of Christ is the last thing they're emphasizing. Yeah. They're emphasizing the similarity of Christ with all people potentially in LDS in actuality yeah. in their temple work. Yep. Let me just take a couple of minutes too to show you what we mean when we say that they take a couple of lines within a whole book that are some of the most difficult lines interpretively. Uh, you know, I mean, even on some of these verses, there could be, uh, you know, three to six possible interpretations. And we can boil that down and come up with an opinion on them, but none of those interpretations are going to be what you find happening in, in the LDS viewpoint. Um, but just listen to how what you just said is so central to the theme that's running throughout First Peter. Uh, Peter starts off chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be mm-hmm. born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So how do we come to have hope? How do we come to this position of being considered those who have been born again? Well, it's caused. How is it caused? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So yeah. how are we saved in this sense of being born again to a living hope. Well, it's through Jesus's resurrection, not through anything that we do or somebody does for us, except for what Jesus has done for us. And then he goes on to say, to, to, this is what you are uh, born again to a living hope, and, and this is what that living hope is, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see what Peter is saying here? Hey, Christian, let me just remind you, your salvation is not contingent upon your performance. You are the people who were caused to be born again with a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and it is in Jesus's resurrection that your hope of your eternal inheritance lies. Your inheritance could not be better guarded. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. It is kept in heaven for you by your power, by your works, no, who by God's power are being guarded that's God is keeping you by his own power. He is keeping your inheritance, 
even, um, and that is through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time, um, the, the, yeah. the fullness of salvation that will be known to us in the final revelation of Christ when he returns uh, to bring his people home. And he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So just notice mm-hmm. how immersed this is in this gospel truth, which is, hey, Christians that are suffering, get your get your minds off your own work and your own situation and your own circumstances and get your mind on Jesus who is your hope. He is yes. your he is your eternal hope. Mm-hmm. And he and because he is resurrected from the dead, your inheritance could not be more guarded. Um you're you're good. And then uh just notice how he does go on to encourage them knowing this is your position as those who've been born again. You are you're God's people and then, uh, man, there's so much richness that I could even say in, in 10 to 14, but let me just skip ahead a little bit here. He says, therefore, in verse 13, chapter 1, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that would be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Again, saving faith, right? That's uh, what we got into last episode. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call him, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Listen to this knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver as gold, but here's how you were ransomed, friends, uh, if you were trusting in Christ and in Christ alone, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. You are believers in God. You belong to God through him who raised him, Jesus, from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Again, your faith and hope are not in you. Your faith and hope are not in principles. principles. They're not in your uh, temple work or work on behalf of the dead. Get your mind off yourself and get your mind on Jesus. That's Peter's yeah. whole thrust in right. all this. And we, we could go on and right. well, the including touches on there. Yeah, including what Peter talks about with living stones to build the spiritual house. So clearly the temple as God's people, uh, which Greg Beal covers as well. Notice they don't touch that because yep. that theology basically disallows the rebuilding of temples made with hands. Yep. And then, of course, even in the passage itself, if you just keep going, right, the whole idea, we've covered this all, all day long, I mean, all year long, where in the Mormon plan of salvation, you know, you're taught principles, and then by your living them, you progress and you go up the stairs yep. to ultimately the same stair God the Father is on. And... Yet here, notice, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Yeah. Showing Why? we're the unrighteous. Why? Right. That, that he, he might bring us yeah. to God. Exactly. He came down. Yep. And then he takes us like the sheep, like the coin, like, right? In Luke 15. Yep. This is the gospel. Yep. And of course, they don't they don't mention that at all. They don't mention even in First Peter 2, right? That you were once not a people. Yep. Wait, what? Wait, I thought I thought Heavenly Parents, Heavenly Mother included, were the parents of 
everybody. So yeah. he, everybody's his people. Yep. And then maybe the church is just his faithful children. Yeah. No, 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 no. You were once not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not, is the difference knowledge? Is the difference the uh, secret knowledge or ordinances or priesthood power or all these things that we hear emphasized all the time? No, no, no. Once you had not received mercy, yep. but now you have received mercy. That's right. This is the God we worship in the gospel we believe in. Yep, that's and, right. And of course, none of that's emphasized. Instead, they find these, uh, what the Gnostics used to, these little cliff edges that were not, you know, there's... I'm not saying we don't know at all what it says, but you know, there's several good options and reasonable minds can, you know, uh, disagree on these options. You know, I, I looked at Augustine, Calvin, even, uh, Bellarmine, a Jesuit. Um, and then of course Schreiner, I looked at a recent commentary by Craig Keener, mm -hmm. you know, we have a good sense of what it means, but on, they all agree on the central point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. right? None, none, of them, none of them just, you know, uh, dismiss, the triune God in Christ saving people according to mercy. Yeah. That's uh, right. That's his right. own mercy rather than our own application of principles by which we ascend. Yep. Yep. That's right. And even just, uh, you know, not, not that we would obviously embrace, uh, any, any part of a LDS worldview, but given that within an LDS view of the spirit world, the only people who really get to be in the presence of God and with their families are those who make it to the celestial kingdom, who get to exaltation. And every LDS person knows the only way you get to the celestial kingdom is through your own work, your own effort, and uh, and stacking up enough of that in order to be considered worthy on the last day to receive a exalted body when you are resurrected. And, um, and so if that's the only place where, where God is, then I just want to point out once again how we're talking about two different Gospels here. Uh, the LDS Gospel is a Gospel of works unto salvation. Exaltations. Yes, because yeah. salvation is, in essence, being in the presence of God. And mm -hmm. uh, for, for many LDS people, I think it's even more importantly being with your family. But... Um, but seeing God as part of your family, I guess, in that yeah. sense as well. And here is Jesus saying, no, or uh, Peter saying, no, the way you get into God's presence, it's Jesus who brings us to God through his once for all sacrifice. Um, you get brought into his presence because he does it for you, not because you do it. And it couldn't be more clear um, in the scriptures if you just open it up and, and read it. Um, okay. We'll come back to that, but Second uh, Peter it, one verses one to eleven is the next one, and we may take the time to read that text it's once beautiful. we get to it. But um, yeah, you know what? Let's just, just go ahead and read it yeah, now. It's yeah, because I I don't want to. Honestly, it. it is so gorgeous. Yes. So Second <laughs> Peter one to eleven <clears throat> says uh, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the un... Isn't that amazing? Yeah. That doesn't fit with the LDS worldview. Mm -mm. To those who have obtained a faith equal of equal standing with ours by, by the righteousness of, of our God, God and, and Savior, Savior, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Christ. And amazing. The, the Greek construction there is something that the KJV, that a lot of LDS will have, I could put more information in the show notes. I, this is off the top of my head. Um, this is one of those 
constructions that we now better understand since the translation of the KJV that this God and Savior is Jesus Christ. Yeah, I think um, in the KJV they split it and say to God and then you know make Jesus yep. um, second, which would still not prove that they are two gods. Yeah, even yep. even like that. But this construction in this verse is one of just the clearest evidences that Jesus Christ is fully God. That's right. He is truly God. That's right. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Beautiful. And again, gets into... Yeah, God God saves us for good works. You know, he, he saves us to live unto him and to make our calling and election sure by evidencing the true faith that we have in Jesus in the way that we become more like him and uh, and grow to reflect the creational image, um, who he is the perfect creational image in his humanity. And uh, that's what we strive to be more like him in that sense. Um, so the LDS Come Follow Me curriculum says in the, the final subtitle, through the power of Jesus Christ, we can develop our divine natures. And it's power. Yep, through power. To encourage those uh, you teach in their efforts to become more like Jesus Christ, you can invite them to identify the Christ-like qualities described in 2 Peter 1, 1-11. Consider writing these qualities on the board and asking class members to define them. Class members could then discuss how developing one quality leads to the development of the other qualities. Provide time for them to ponder which quality they would like to develop more fully. Yeah. And notice they define them. It's mm-hmm. the class members define the terms, yeah. not Peter. Certainly not the teacher, not even their general authorities. Yep. Here's here's the more um, democratic principle of LDS polity that um, is often under, under underappreciated, given how hierarchical it at, it is at times and appears from the outside. Yep. Yep. But at, at the end of the day, they're the ones that define them, and then that's their plan. It's based on the definition apparently the class members agree on. Yep. Yep. All right, Skyler. Okay. Take us into the spirit world, brother. Well, I, I figured I'd let their seminary manual for teachers, which I think is down today, by the way. I'm glad I took these notes because um, I wrote down through highlights from it, but the, the links aren't working today. So who knows? Maybe they're changing it. But um, 
starting, and, and then I want to talk about how they connect. Um, but the first one, it's called the work of salvation for the dead. And they start the same way the manual does with basically what will happen to people who never had the opportunity to hear or accept. And they don't even say the gospel. They say authorized ordinances, which isn't a contradiction for them because gospel is law, right? To the LDS. Uh, the Apostle Peter taught that Jesus Christ preached the gospel in the spirit world after his death. Once again, no uh, discussion of the debate over the Greek of this passage in context at all. They just say that and move on, no citations, making the blessings of the gospel available. So notice, he preached the gospel, and that makes the gospel available to all of Heavenly Father's children. That's a key distinction, right? He still can't save them. That's the point. He can only teach them the knowledge by which, if they live it, they become gods themselves, as Joseph Smith said. This lesson will help you explore ways to assist the Savior in his work of redeeming the dead. Can you believe that? This lesson will help you explore ways to assist the Savior in his work. I just, and they wouldn't put it this way, and I admit it, but that is a clear confession of the insufficiency of Jesus' work. Yep. Clearly. Yeah, and again, just being willing to listen to the words of verse 18, chapter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, Mm -hmm. the righteous for the unrighteous. And in the right context, I mean, any Jew would have, would have understood the reference to the Old Testament law in the sense that um, there wasn't an offering that could be provided one time in the mm-hmm. Old Testament uh, cultic system. The priests would offer daily sacrifices, and none of that sin could be finally and forever expiated or taken away through those sacrifices. And so the point that Peter is making is Jesus came and he is in the words that Hebrews uses that are very similar, he is the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. There is no longer a sacrifice needed. His work completed all that was required for the salvation of his people. Right. Right. They don't. And, and it's, it, once again, this is another element in which it's a very American religion, right? Americans don't like to be saved. We like to do the saving, Right. And if your whole system is Jesus as an example, he did this, you can too, he did this, you can too. And this is another yet another example of this. In fact, both are, if you read between the lines of the second one, as we're going to get to. But listen to this from uh, who was a president of the church, the third one, John Taylor. He said, we are the only people that know how to save our progenitors. We, in fact, are the saviors of the world if they ever are saved. So once again, this, even, you know, people who are Christians, we see that we're of a like nature of Jesus and his humanity, but a completely <laughs> unlike nature in terms of his divinity. No, Jesus, insofar as he's a savior, you can too. And we're going to see that uh, certain forms of Mormonism take that all the way, including maybe between the lines of this second lesson. Hmm. So uh, it starts with a perplexing question, and similar to the manual, it just says, it's the same Christofferson quote where he says, Christian theologians and scholars... And it's funny, they, they put in the word scholars almost to, I guess, clarify, because mm-hmm. they don't, I guess, yeah, I don't, have long wrestled with the question, what is the destiny of the countless billions who have lived and died with no knowledge of Jesus? And of course, they're assuming into that a very non-existence of a God that we believe in, that's sovereign and controls all things according to his will. 
it, in other words, it's not that it's not a good question, and Christians haven't wrestled with it. That is true. Yeah. But it's in the context of a God who knows all things and does all he wants mm-hmm. for his own glory. Yeah. And therefore, we have peace in that God. Um, so it, it says then, how might you respond to someone who asks you this question? Um, and of course, if students need to hit a hint, the, the teacher is supposed to show a picture of a temple or a family pedigree chart in case they didn't get the hint. If students e- easily answer the question, consider asking how they knew the answer to something that has confused many people for centuries. See, look how smart you guys are. You have living prophets, clearly. Um, then it's the savior in the spirit world. While the knowledge of salvation for the dead was restored um, through the prophet Joseph Smith, and as we're going to see somewhat, the Bible contains passages that show us that those truths were understood and taught by the early apostles, once again, creating the early church in their own image. Yeah. For example, the apostle Peter taught about what Christ, Jesus Christ did for those who died without a knowledge of the gospel. And once again, what did he do? And I'm going to jump the gun just a little bit. DNC 138, which I'll put in the show notes. <clears throat> Key. It's the last section of the Doctrine and Covenants. If you go there, 138. Um, it was a revelation at the time in, in 1918, the year Joseph F. Smith died. Um, and then I, I believe it was April 1976. It was actually voted on and added to the Pearl of Great Price, which they then in 1979 added to the Doctrine and Covenants. I actually have some old copies of the DNC that don't have it in it. But it, even there, Jesus uh, does not go to spirit prison, for example. Um, he only appears to the righteous. He only appears to the righteous. And so in the spirit world, he just organizes a great missionary force among the righteous who are sent to the spirit prison to teach the gospel to those spirits. And so it's the knowledge that gives them the ability to act. And of course, though, if, it, if to, to, to progress, you need the allowing power associated with ordinances that are done in the earthly sphere mm-hmm. that they can't have done in the spirit, then of course, does Jesus do it? No, no. We do it in the temple based on the power that Jesus has, but also the other gods have. Yeah. Um, to allow that progress to happen if they choose and if they choose to live it. So why is this important? This is an example, and I, I was telling you, I'm struggling to find a term for it where you can isolate a variable. This is a perfect whiteboard example, test case, mm-hmm. where we see how Jesus saves in their system. Yeah. See, for us, the test case would be the thief on the cross. Mm-hmm. You know, right before Jesus said it is finished, where he said, what, today you'll be with me at paradise, which he didn't mean the spirit paradise of Mormonism, clearly. But today you'll be with me, is the point. Mm -hmm. If the thief lived an unrighteous life, where would he go even in the Mormon system? In another, you're going to be with me in paradise, where I'm going today. And and so, Jesus, we believe in a Savior who saves. When we say Savior, that's what we mean. Mm -hmm. But for them, Savior is... He goes and he doesn't even teach them. He teaches missionaries what to teach them. And then if they live according to that knowledge, then they'll become exalted at the pace allowed by the cosmos. So what did he, what did Jesus actually do here? And what doesn't he do? Think about that. What does he do? What doesn't he do? And then backtrack and just ask yourself, what does he do for you who are alive? And what doesn't he do 
for you who are alive. And you'll notice, and though Holland kind of snuck it in there, we covered this in the John 1 episode, uh, probably should have covered it a little better on the Philippians 2. What did he say that there was the actual divine mission of Jesus was to reveal to man, right, that it's not robbery to be equal to God. Mm-hmm. That's not me. That's Jeffrey Holland. Now, um, then they uh, to speed along a little bit, they, they notice the JST translation that does affect the meaning. <clears throat> um, but then it it they have a, a feature of modern revelation with Joseph F. Smith in DNC 138. And, of course, it's the gospel is preached to the dead so that they can have the same opportunities. Notice what you read in First Peter. It wasn't about opportunities. It was God caused. God did. God's done. Believe in the promise. And even in Second Peter, the promise, what God, the work he starts, he saves you in the mud, and then he saves you from the mud. And we see that the fruit of the Spirit, as Paul would say. No, no, no. Here, it's to give the opportunity that if they obey, uh, they can uh, exalt themselves eventually in, in some mechanism. And we might have time to get to some of the what that mechanism is, whether they can advance spiritually or do they need to live other lives physically. All right. Our responsibility. Ready? This is our responsibility. And they quote Dale Renlin's April 2018 conference talk called Family History and Temple Work Sealing and Healing. Notice how many times he focuses on what you do as church members, or what church members do, rather. As church members, we do have a divinely appointed responsibility to seek out our ancestors and compile family histories. This is far more than an encouraged hobby because the ordinances of salvation are necessary for all God's children, which is everybody. We are to identify our own ancestors who died without receiving the ordinances of salvation. We can perform the ordinances vicariously in temples, and our ancestors may choose to accept the ordinances. We are also encouraged to help warden stake members with their family names. Notice, we, 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 we. It is breathtakingly amazing that through family history and temple work, we can help to redeem the dead. What is my responsibility to deceased ancestors? Well, they quote um, Quentin Cook saying, our doctrinal obligation is to our own ancestors. That is because the celestial organization of heaven is based on families, which if you just extend that, that means Heavenly Father is married to at least one wife and has children, and Jesus is married and children, and the Holy Ghost, at least eventually, if not already, children and married. President Thomas S. Monson, in his uh, talk, Hastening the Work, or sorry, not a talk. This is just ends in June 2014. How can temple and family history work bless me? Where's the payoff, right? There's many blessings. Many blessings. He says this. The Lord has never, to my knowledge, indicated that his work is confined to mortality. Which, of course, um, what does he mean by Lord? <laughs> but think about it. What about when Jesus says, the night cometh when no man can work? What about the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? where it's too late, and he doesn't even listen to the request, not just to satiate his thirst and from his burning, but he says, if they don't believe Moses, then they wouldn't, they wouldn't believe, mm-hmm. you know, even if someone came, uh, was raised from the dead. Yeah. What about um, when Jesus says it is finished on the cross? Not just for him. He didn't need to save himself. What would be finished? I know the LDS have their way of rationalizing it in their system. I would say Thomas S. Monson, though he was supposedly the one 
prophet on earth of Jesus Christ and the one true church of Jesus Christ, um, doesn't really know Jesus very well. I think that's evidence of that. Now, going into the next lesson, and I want to go through this again. I, it's worth the time. I uh, hope, Hopefully you're still with me, listener. This is worth it. This is very, these lessons, some of the best examples I've seen all year in the seminary manual of what Mormonism, the core of it really is. Second yeah. Peter 1, becoming like Jesus, and then we'll connect these. This lesson is intended to help you take steps to become more like Jesus. Helping learners understand the Savior's attributes, right? That is the goal. And we've covered before, we've mentioned it. Remember, if the attributes, if the path is more important than any particular God who's on it, right? It's the path that determines what is exaltation itself, right? It's almost like a natural law view of the plan of salvation. And what's, it's not me, that's Johnny would so. It, um, then why do you worship any particular person? Isn't it the office that's the more important thing? Well, yeah, and there's tons of quotes I could quote on that. But just remember, Orson Pratt did actually think that, right? That it's these attributes we should be worshiping, not any particular person, because that shifts all the time as people progress and move on and gods progress and move on. As students learn about the Savior, help them go beyond learning about what the Savior, uh, what he did and said. Can you believe that? Mm -hmm. Help them go beyond learning about what he said and did and learn who he is. One way to do this is to focus on his attributes. Sounds pretty prat to me. Now, it's uh, under the heading step-by-step achievements. What is a meaningful goal you would like to achieve? What are you doing to accomplish this goal? Right? And um, they... Have this talk, and I, I, um, I'm just realizing I need their app to work <laughs> um, to get the full quote, but I can describe it, and I have some of it written down. But it's Elder Scott D. Whiting, Scott D. Whiting, called Becoming Like Him, October 2020. Um, and it, uh, a few years ago, my wife and I stood at the trailhead yes. of Japan's highest mountain, mm -hmm. Mount Fuji. As we began our ascent, we looked up to the far distant summit and wondered if we could get there. As we progressed, fatigue, sore muscles, and the effect of altitude set in. Mentally, it became important for us to focus on just the next step. We would say, quote, I may not soon make it to the top, but I can do the next step right now. Isn't that incredible? Yeah, hold on. One more sentence. Over, yep. the, over time, the daunting task ultimately became achievable. Step by step. It's incredible, right? Ascent language. Th this is a perfect example. I mean, he did a great job of teaching in an LDS way. Mm -hmm. This is someone who I think understands the deeper Mormon conception, who understands the deeper Mormon doctrine. How does he hide it, so to speak? He, he hints at it with words like ascent, progressed, and then soon make it to the top, right? I may not soon make it but I can do the next step or life. Over time, the daunting task ultimately became achievable step by step. Let me read, um, and I don't, I guess, would it be dramatic to say what I was upset about recently? Yeah, maybe so. Let me just read one primary source. Uh, there, recently, there were some brothers who thought this had nothing to do with... Um, Mormonism, but let me just read one primary source from Heber C. Kimball. Just a quick quote. 
from 1857. And this is not just anybody. Hebrew C. Kimball, and of course, the descendants who still believe in what he taught that are out there, um, who still believe in this, uh, apparently, at least as of 2006 and 2009. Um, Orson F. Whitney clearly believed it as well. Here's some primary sources, leaders, uh, LDS names that were a big deal in their and time. Some of the things you mentioned, too, in, in passing there can be evidenced by recordings that you can look up and find mm -hmm. that uh, show that there are current members of these people yep. who still believe these believe the same, same things. Yep. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And I know by my own experience that there's people in the church who believe it. It's not just... Um, these fringe cases that happen to make the news because of crimes they've committed. Yeah. Um, but listen to this, Hebrew C. Kimball. What I do not do, or sorry, what I do not today, when the sun goes down, I lay down to sleep, which is typical of death. And in the morning, I rise and commence my work where I left it yesterday. That course is typical of the probations we take. Probations, plural, we take. But suppose that I do not improve my time today. I wake up tomorrow, I find myself in the rear. And then if I do not improve upon that day and again lay down to sleep on awaking, I find myself still in the rear. This day's work is typical of this probation, singular. And the sleep of every night is typical of death. And rising in the morning is typical of the resurrection. <laughs> the, <laughs> they are day's labors, and it is for us to be faithful today, tomorrow, and every day. Hebrew C. Kimball, who uh, there's evidence he was ordained to the next Godhead, by the way. Okay. And of course, uh, in fact, can I tell one more Hebrew C. Kimball story? Mm -hmm. He would do, on the pioneer journey, um, literally would do a uh, temple ordinances um, on the journey itself. And there's an account of him um, where, let me see if I can find it really quick. This is amazing. So, of course, before they left, they were doing a lot of prayer rituals, including one that's called the, it's a prayer circle. Um, and uh, in Nauvoo, as part of the meetings of what was called the Quorum of the Anointed, I, I'll go into this more of this some other time. Later in the temple itself, the participants engaged in something called the True Order of Prayer. This is still practiced today, as far as I know, unless that was recently changed. I doubt it. Dressed in full temple robes, the members of the circle would make certain sacred ritual gestures and then assume a sacred ritual posture as they prayed vocally. On April 4th, 1846, after a prolonged period of terrible weather, Hebrew Kimball performed a variation of this ritual by himself. He told Emmeline B. Wells that he had, quote, on Saturday evening went into the woods by himself, offered up the signs of the holy priesthood, and prayed to the Lord that the storm might abate, and the sun shine forth in his majesty and for the health, prosperity, and salvation of the camp of Israel. Kimball was unsurprised when the prayer was answered and the sun came out. So Hebrew C. Kimball credits himself for kind of like a Mormon uh, Sundance, uh, inverse rain dance. Uh, so that, but once again, he's, he was very, very, very well respected and clearly taught multiple mortal probations. Okay. As did uh, Orson F. Whitney. Okay. Who at the time would have been like mix Jeffrey R. Holland and Mitt Romney together. That's Orson F. Whitney. And I, I think, and I, I mentioned this to you, the greatest piece of literature ever written by a Mormon is Orson F. Whitney's Elias. It's a it's an epic poem, and it's pretty incredible. Okay, now, Scott D. Whiting doesn't say that, but notice that. Over time, he thinks, oh, I can't make it, but if you just focus on right now, over time, the daunting task of what? Getting to the top of the mountain, of ascending, of progressing. 
ultimately became achievable step-by-step. This is in the lesson, becoming like Jesus Christ, or maybe it should be called becoming Jesus Christ for another world. Uh, I got another quote for you. (laughs) I read this to you right before. Another evidence. Uh, Maybe our brothers will listen to this. President Young said, this is Wilford Woodruff's journal. President Young said, there never was any world created in people, nor never would be. But what would be redeemed by the shedding of the blood of the Savior of that world? If we are ever exalted and crowned in the presence of God, we shall become saviors of a world which we shall create in people. I know why the blood of Jesus was shed. I know why the blood of Joseph and Hiram and others have been shed, and the blood of others will be shed. It is all to answer a purpose that has its effect. Adam made this world and suffered himself to take a body and subject himself to sin, that redemption and exaltation might come to man. Notice, Adam is the father in this system. Without descending below all things, we cannot ascend above all things. There never will be any change of the gospel of salvation. It is an eternal gospel and the same in all worlds and always will be to the endless ages of eternity. There never was a period, but what worlds existed and never will be, and they all have the same gospel and law of salvation. And um, there's more there. But the, the point being, this is clearly taught. And if, if Jesus even lived one life before in which he saw, the just as Joseph Smith taught, in which the Father did what he did to this world, mm-hmm. that's two lives. Yeah. Probations, plural. Yep. Okay. Now, what's incredible is that is basically here, right? <laughs> Jesus climbed the mountain, so should we. So here, here it is. You think, oh, well, they're going to emphasize something different. Well, this he, Emmanuel says this. This example can apply to achieving many different goals. What can it help us understand about the goal of becoming like Jesus Christ? Remember that it is important to view your progression in becoming more like Jesus Christ as gradual, step-by-step process. But if you only have one life to do it, why would you emphasize this? That's not gradual. That's you have 80 years, hopefully, yeah. to become perfect as he was perfect. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, like like we've and we've brought this up before, but within the system, it's actually more comforting to think that you've got multiple order probations to mm-hmm. be able to progress, to think that you've got to get to perfection mm-hmm. to the same level of what Jesus attained um, in order to gain a, an exalted body in just this one life is terrifying. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, I think even those who would deny it, they're just giving too much um, possibility to, to how far you can progress spiritually. If they can't even do baptisms for themselves in the spirit prison or whatever, yeah. how are they supposed to exalt themselves bodily the way Heavenly Father did and the way Jesus Christ did? So I just think, you know, the whole point of progressing spiritually to the point of getting a body and then progressing embodied in an embodied state to become a heavenly father and mother is that you need to master the body the way you've already mastered the spirit. Mm-hmm. But that same leeway, the average LDS that doesn't know this stuff still believes in implicitly if they think, well, if you just keep trying, eventually you'll make it the way they're teaching in the manual. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, but it does get washed out in, into more ambiguity. Yes. In the it is definitely of, more, ambiguous. you know, in the sense of, uh, we just we just do our best and hope that God will make up the rest, you know. Yes, and just things like that that are common sayings in modern mm-hmm. LDSism. Um, it's just kind of like let's just not think about all the logical implications of the system. 
because that doesn't feel good. So let's, you know, just consider that God's grace will make up our lack, whatever that may be, mm-hmm. hopefully. Yeah. And I just, I guess, I just want to put it out there on this record, some sort, you know, if I get hit by a bus tonight, I was taught multiple mortal probations by faithful LDS people from three different streams. Yeah. In other words, three groups don't know each other, don't care about each other. I wrote a comparative religion paper and discovered this when I was 20 mm-hmm. from a PhD a Buddhologist. And I was struggling with this final essay that the final was this paper. Um, and I was comparing Mormonism mm-hmm. and Hinduism and I was getting caught up in like dietary restrictions and rituals and whatever. And there's plenty there, but he just said, look up Heber C. Kimball. And all of a sudden I'm like, Oh my goodness. You know, yeah. and I'm, and I'm finding books uh, by theologians claiming reincarnation is the key, you know, missing key to, to um, the Bible or the Christian worldview and conspiracies, just like the Trinity, right? That somehow is squashed and whatever. And what's interesting is some of these same arguments are made by Terrell Givens, but to defend the pre-mortal existence rather than pro- post-mortal progression in an embodied way. Yeah, yeah. And so you just, as is the case with most LDS doctrines, you have to think like an attorney with terms and you have to... F- you have to orient like a Gnostic and realize there's always a double message and the most important things are not said. Yeah. And that's always been the case. Not out in the open. Right. Right. And it's, it's just a culture of subterfuge. It's not even necessarily conscious on the part of the individual. Just ask them about the temple. Mm -hmm. That is the heart of their system, but they want to talk to us about James two. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the heart of their system. James two is not even part of their system. And I think it may help listeners to know that there may be some, people who are listening to the podcast who are LDS or uh, maybe they're, they're ex LDS. And you may hear some of this stuff that scholars bring it up and reading. And you may think to yourself, well, I, I was never taught that that was not my experience. And, and sometimes there can be a, a, a bit of a reaction to that and just getting upset about it. But what we want to challenge you to do on this podcast is it, it's okay. If you don't think you were ever taught this, but do you see the logical consistency, the logical consistency of it within an LDS worldview? Yeah, you know, and that's been yeah. the goal all year is to try mm-hmm. to present a LDS worldview that's cohesive to try right. to try to make it make sense um, yeah. it, by driving it to its logical ends as much as is possible. And many thinkers within LDSism have done this and have done mm-hmm. this decently well. Yep. But those things just don't tend to be what you find in the mainstream. So nope. we're trying to actually. Um, call into account the worldview as a whole. And some of that may seem foreign to people who are in the mainstream because sure. things don't tend to be taken in, to their logical consistency. But, sure. But just think about some of the things that we brought up in many of the episodes, even this this year. I, I can't remember if it was the Easter episode or a later episode where we really honed in on the resurrection of Jesus. And even in that lesson, there was explicit teaching that uh, Jesus was resurrected to an exalted body because of the fact that he was a redeemer and was sacrificial mm-hmm. and was was perfect. And and so we made these connections back even in that episode yep. of thinking through, okay, take that to its logical end. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you want to get an exalted body and the system tells you 
Jesus is the example of what it looks like to get an exalted body, mm-hmm. then what was Jesus? What did he have to do to gain that exalted body? Mm-hmm. And the expectation in an LDS system is that you would live up to the same level of expectation as Jesus mm-hmm. in order to gain that exalted body. Otherwise, you know, how did Jesus get that exalted body? Right. You know, and, and that's where you get some inconsistencies there of like Jesus had to be perfect to get his exalted body, but maybe we don't have to be. Maybe Jesus will pull us up. Well, Nowhere in an LDS system do I see that Heavenly Father pulled Jesus up in the middle of his imperfection, but some no. LDS thinkers have tried to lower Jesus and saying, well, he wasn't perfect. You know, yeah. He had flaws. He did this or that. Mm-hmm. And you got to go one direction or the, the other, right? you got to yeah. lower Jesus or you've got to lower the standard for you in a way that's not as much as what Jesus had to go through in order to gain his exaltation. For sure. And that's what makes sense of even these fringe doctrines that are often just uh, scoffed at by people in and out. Yeah. Um, so, for example, if Jesus just achieved his celestial body, but Adam and Eve entered the garden with one, oh, all of a sudden, Michael, God starts to make a whole lot of sense, yep. even if you don't believe it. Yeah. And guess what? That's another doctrine I was taught by people who probably are still in the church. Yep. Just, it's Wednesday night in yep. my house. Yep. yep. Not, yeah, definitely not Sunday school. I mean, you got to keep in mind, it's 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 Gnostic within Gnostic within Gnostic. It's, there's layers to this onion, and um, but they're all going to these same sources. It, it, it's not making up stuff. Um, they, now, they have their own debates mm-hmm. uh, oh, in yeah. each form of... And I don't want to just say fundamentalism, uh, but it's, you know, people who go to these fundamental teachings and stuff, they have their own debates for sure. Um, but, but once again, even with this word game, I remember asking a faithful LDS who, as far as I know, is still in it. Um, what about Spencer Kimball denouncing the Adam God theory? And he told me some story, whether it's apocryphal or not, I don't know, of someone who approached Kimball, Kimball uh, specifically and asked him about that. He said, I didn't, I didn't uh, denounce the Adam God doctrine. I denounce the Adam God theory. Mm-hmm. See, there's the attorney angle. And then when it's like, oh, you're, you're open to more truth and can keep a secret. And I have quotes. I'll put them in the show notes. I don't have time to read them. But Hebrew yeah. T. Kimball and Brigham Young both taught that, for example, if a man can't keep secrets even from his wife, that God will, Hebrew T. Kimball said, never, 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 right, be exalted and crowned in the celestial kingdom. Yep. So even within families, they'll keep secrets. So, you know, it's... it's um, yeah, you got to see the Gnostic element. But here's the point, and, and as you pointed out, what's the logical conclusion of these things? Yeah, it's true some of these things aren't printed publicly, but it's not like there's no historical basis, A. And B, what's the logical implication of those teachings that are still there? That's really the point. And when they, they take the Jesus thing, don't cast your pearls before swine, and they make it about, well, just teach it to those who are progressed to the point that they can understand this. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, if you have eternal rounds, eternal rounds, eternal lives, eternal lives. The idea is that eventually everyone will have the opportunity. Even if they choose not to, but they change their mind, they might have the opportunity. So I showed you a quote. Uh, I, we've already covered this year that maybe even Satan, if he changed his mind, could go up the stairs instead of down the stairs. Yeah. And then uh, Joseph F. Smith himself, since he's the thing, what did he say about Judas? Yep. The same thing. It's like, I don't, I don't think he knew enough to qualify to be a son of perdition, not even mm-hmm. Judas. So here's the thing. When the manual... Then goes to divine nature, as we've covered all year long. What can it when it can it talk about? It says this in a letter to members of the church who already had faith in Jesus. And that's key for them. These are people who already had faith in Jesus, so they're moving up the ladder, right? The apostle Peter expressed his desire for them to receive the blessings of knowing Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ and their divine nature. 
What do you think it means to be partakers of the divine nature? So first it emphasizes their divine nature. Does it say, wow, worship God or how incredible this transcendent being? No, no, no. What do they then immediately jump to in the manual? Each of us has a divine nature. This is the section called divine nature. Yeah. <laughs> immediately it goes to our divine nature because we are each a beloved spirit, son or daughter of heavenly parents. That includes heavenly mother. Read that. Heavenly mother. Jesus Christ can help us develop and refine our Christ-like attributes. How? You could almost say he marked the path and led the way, right? As we strive to follow his perfect example and rely on him to help us change. Right? He can give power or whatever, but he can never do anything for you. He can't become a God for you. Now, in their study journal, this is an incredible exercise. Then the students in their study journal are supposed to draw Mount Fuji or another mountain of your choice. So there's choice here. Right? It doesn't have to be Mount Fuji. Um, you know, it could be temp if you want it. And then on your mountain, you're to write a few of Jesus Christ's attributes. And this is what they do with Second Peter. They take the those attributes. Supposedly, those are attributes, right? Um, that we and the gods can share in common. There's no incommunicable attributes, and and they make a mountain out of it. But what it what it does is. You know, um, for example, godliness is only on the second level of the example mountain in the manual. Think of that. The top, of course, is charity, which we've covered this, that charity and love are not exactly the same thing in LDSism. And then, of course, they have this line going up the mountain, and it says diligence. Diligence. What can we do to develop Christ-like attributes? How do you think developing divine attributes helps us to know Jesus Christ and become more like him? How might your life be improved by developing the Christ-like attributes? What efforts are you willing to make to become more like the Savior by developing these attributes? Notice, they never limit this principle. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. For those that are saying, well, it doesn't explicitly say it, but it doesn't explicitly deny it. And in a Gnostic system, what should be expected? What will it take for me to develop Christ-like attributes? Then they come back to the talk by Elder Scott D. Whiting. And it says, in order to see real progress... You will need to put in sustained effort. Much like climbing a mountain requires preparation before and endurance and perseverance during ascent, so too will this journey require real effort and sacrifice. True Christianity, in which we strive to become like our master, has always required our best efforts. I know that becoming like him through his divine help and strength is achievable, step by step. If not so, he would have given us this commandment. And I think there's also places in the talk, I didn't write down the whole thing in which he says, you might have altitude sickness, you might have this, you might, you know, but the point is you just keep going. And then it says, using an eight-step pattern, you know, we are to, you know, weaving Christ-like attributes into our character, spiritually woven together into our very nature. And of course, David Ridges, just to top it off, says this is uh, basically um, a step program to Quote, gain exaltation and become gods, <laughs> David Ridges. And then, you know, he calls us to join him in internal glory and righteousness. And, of course, he also emphasizes that knowledge is power and uh, leans into Joseph Smith's quote, which knowledge, that does have a Gnostic meaning. So, how do these things connect? Well, first off, these are probably, and of course, as they're wont to do, they do it in the same lesson, so we don't have as much time as I want for each. This lesson is speaks to the core of what mormonism is 
in the sense that it's not one life that's it, and then that's it, right, by God's choice. No, no, no. You have as many chances as you, I guess, have the uh, choices, <laughs> right? And agency can't be violated even by the gods. Mm-hmm. And if you exercise that agency according to the gospel, which is the teachings of Jesus, which is by which we can, if applied, have power to progress as he has, become like gods, that is the hope of Mormonism. That, I mean, that is absolutely the hope. Um, and, and it's just this um, obsession over spiritual work. I, I could speak a ton from experience, as I could with some of the MMP stuff. Um, you have people that have had um, immense hardship in the Joseph F. Smith. And what Joseph F. Smith does, and we see exemplified in not only DNC 138, but in other works of his and in his life, is that he is a huge reason for the LDS tying eternal families, temples, and the spirit world, based on worthiness, of course, based on worthiness, together in a way that we recognize as LDS. I do think it's building on DNC 132, but if you'll notice, DNC 132 does not depict specifically an eternal family-based heaven, though I think it could be implied. I'm not saying it's a contradiction. I'm just saying it's Joseph F. Smith where we transition into uh, that era, I should say, where it stops being more um, patriarch and priesthood-based and more specifically genealogical genealogical based and what i mean by that is in the temple sealing used to be not just families together but you would seal get sealed to prophets even or to priesthood holders or people who had a higher priesthood it, um it was a linking of priesthood and a chain of priesthood and that started slowly to go away and then 1894 woodruff ended it and made it about your family and of course the issue then was if, if, say, you're sealed to your parents or your ch- children are sealed to you um, after they're dead, and, of course, they didn't live lives worthy of the exaltation you hope for them, how, um, you know, they died outside of the church, how could their worthiness be established? And DNC 138, if you read it with that in mind, that's the key, that the faithfulness of each family member to temple sealing covenants, eventually mm-hmm. it will work out. And uh, apart from unrepented sin, um, which can, you can repent in the spirit, this is the point, um, then the key doctrine and key practice of how Joseph F. Smith called Mormonism defined or the true religion of Jesus is eternal families. And of course, the, the practice did include plural marriage, though he's also one who, quote, suspended it, didn't reject polygamy, suspended it because apparently the, you know, the church wasn't worthy of it at the time or in that there are other reasons. So, so yeah, I, you know, it's um, the, the concept of heaven is a place for families. I cannot emphasize enough Joseph F. Smith's, Joseph F. Smith's role in that. And I, I have more I could say to that. I just, I don't know how much time we have left. Um, Get, getting close. Okay. Well, let me, uh, let me, um, I have more I could say about Joseph Smith. Let me let me talk a little bit about some of my experience. Um, my my grandfather died tragically when I was five. Mm-hmm. I remember it. He was my dad was very busy. Um, my parents had me pretty young, 
and my dad was working and going to school and all this stuff. I grew up with my grandfather being my father figure um, in those early years. Mm-hmm. And I remember he was a big, burly Englishman, Kurt McConkey attorney. Um, in fact, a first presidency letter was read at his funeral uh, with Howard Hunter being president at the time. And um, I remember him walking in, just some background, right? Him walking in, where's the boy? You know, he when he married my grandmother, whose story is in the Miracle of Forgiveness, who I've mentioned before, um, he said, I don't want any girls and no redheads. Uh, he had, they had five girls, two redheads, my mom being one of them. Yep. So when I was born as the first grandchild, right? And I was a boy, you know, I was called the boy, right? And I remember going on walks with him and all this stuff and his English accent, his laugh. I remember doing the, the grand old Duke of York, you know, banging on the table over and over and over again. When he died, I remember that day as if it were yesterday. And immediately the story of consolation in facing death, right, was my, my grandfather served his mission in France, was in the spirit world, um, they must need uh, French speakers. You know, he could be a French-speaking missionary. And I was told this in Blessings, even, uh, uh, about him. The other side of the family, my grandma Hamilton, she basically learned her way into the church as someone who was passionate about family and genealogy, she read her way. I mean, I, I, you know, I asked her when the missionaries found her. She said that they didn't. I found them. And, of course, she died in it. Um, and uh, she, uh, she believed this. This is what kept her in it. Mm-hmm. was this connecting of all the family and it all work out. And um, and when my dad, my father died in, see, May 19th, 2018, um, he drank himself to death, was also a cocaine addict at the time. And um, it, he died the weekend of my sister's funeral. A mm. uh, sister who is still LDS, whom I love very much, though, or really, we're not very close Sister's uh, wedding. Sister's wedding weekend. Yeah. yeah. Just, you said funeral. funeral. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, uh, clarified. Yeah, thank you. And um, so we all happened to be in the same house that night uh, when we got the call from the hospital uh, saying, you know, 50 minutes, whatever. And we took my grandparents there and we're waiting for him to die. Right. And um, my, what is my grandmother saying as she watches her son die? Again, she, the, my grandparents lost both their kids. Um, is say hi to this family member. Say hi to that family member. Um, I had a first cousin commit suicide. Um, none of us saw it coming. I, I saw him maybe six months before. Good looking guy, funny guy. You look at a picture, you just think, man, you have the whole world ahead of you, right? The whole life ahead of you. And, um, and then, and I'm including me, of course, uh, you know, all the people that never saw this coming at the funeral, LDS funeral, of course, all were so confident that they know after death, what clearly they couldn't even see pre death. Mm-hmm. None of them saw that death coming, but they all knew where he was. Mm-hmm. There's not even a hesitancy about it, a humility about it. I listened 
to a dear family member close to him, talk about how she's already seen him in visions and talked to him. And uh, he's in the celestial kingdom in a better place now. Mm-hmm. Committed suicide. Yeah. When my mom was going to get baptized, um, as a Christian, of course, what happens? Family member talking to people in the spirit, talking to the dead, said that my dad and then her dad, my grandfather, the Englishman, um, came to her in a dream and said my mom would lose her family mm-hmm. if she was baptized Christian, which part of that baptism, of course, is renouncing false gods and false gospels and getting your name removed, of course, from the LDS Church. Um, I cannot emphasize enough. I mean, this is everywhere. Yep. The, the, the veil is so thin. In the temple, it's, it's revealed as thin. <laughs> they lean into this as much as anything yep. in LDS culture. And it's so tragic. It's so tragic to see suffering people lean into lies like this. What is the basis of their hope? Really? If there's an LDS listening, what is the basis of your hope at all? People who we know are teaching lies? And yet, this is, this is the thing. You know, people who think ignorance is the problem. These are people who, in suffering, double down on the biggest problem, mm-hmm. which is God has spoken. He came into the world to save sinners. And he speaks of a hell to come that's to be feared apart from him. And, and yet, I, I want to human, you know, I've, I've done a lot of, and we've talked about tone and stuff throughout the year. I know I've done better, worse, whatever, um, on, in, in terms of my tone to people where they're at. And, and my rashness can be, you know, I, I admit I can be abrasive and all that. But let me, can I humanize Joseph F. Smith really quick? Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. Joseph F. Smith lost 13 children in his life. Uh, first when he was age 30, and then his last, he had so much hope in this son. I think his name is Hiram Maximuth, died the year he, he died in 1918. He lost five children between the years of 1877 and 1886 alone. And listen to some of the stuff uh, he, he says here. Uh, this is a, a recent biography by Stephen Taysom. He, he had uh, his first child, Josephine, he called her Jode. And um, she became sick. And, uh, of course, Joseph F. Smith, um, frankly, you read this, and, man, he was a workaholic and constantly doing the bidding of the church leaders above him, and, and he just wanted to be with his family. And I mean, yeah. Well, he, part of his job was he worked at the endowment house, which was kind of a temporary temple, more limited, but until the St. George Temple, which I guess we'll have to cover some other time. I was going to cover the founding fathers coming to Wilford Woodruff. But anyway, um, he's working there, and uh, but was, of course, distracted by her uh, by her declining condition. Uh, when at home, JFS, uh, Joseph F. Smith, would hold her on his lap and feed her, feed her strawberries in cold water. When she did not improve, Joseph F. Smith grew increasingly distraught. Quote, I have no appetite. My sympathy and solicitude for my darling little Josephine has greatly bowed my spirit. Despite such oppressive feelings, he wrote somewhat uncertainly that, quote, I think I have received a testimony that she will not die. He's already an apostle as the priesthood. He's Hiram's son. 
I've received a testimony that she will not die. The next day, the next day, June 6th, 1870, a JFS reluctantly prepared for work at the endowment house. He spoke to his little daughter, telling her that she had not slept much that night before. After giving, giving him a hug and kiss, she said, I'll sleep today, Papa. But JFS would never see his daughter alive again, sorry. Mm. When he returned from the endowment house that evening, she lay dead, and he nearly broke down. He poured his grief into his journal in the form of a prayer to her daughter, his daughter, Jode. He, he said this, Oh, my Jode, my heart is nearly broken for the loss of you. You came to me when my heart was wrung in a time of deep trouble, sorrow, and affliction. Like a golden sunbeam of joy, thou wert a green oasis in my hitherto desert life. Thou didst make me a better man. For thy sake I loved humanity, earth, and heaven more. Thou didst draw me nearer unto God and purify my heart. And notice the theological language there. And then he implored his daughter, In thy spirit visit me. Do my bidding and watch over us. He received a testimony she wouldn't die. Literally the next day she died. Does he question the worldview? Does he question his discernment? His religion? His yeah. hope? Yeah. No. It's tragic. No. Yeah. And it, it's just... We, sh we as Christians should talk about death way more than we do. Mm -hmm. I, I guess I, I want to give a sliver of credit to the LDS emphasis on this. Though I think at the same time, though, the way they emphasize it blunts the edge. Yeah. Because, I mean, it, even Joseph F. Smith, right, he talks of it as almost a, a transition. Like, he speaks of it very platonically that, um, I like how Stephen Taysom puts it, he redefined death as a doorway from the shadowy, painful world of mortality to the real life that lies beyond. Casting mortal life as a kind of illusion, but the afterlife is absolutely real. And you see DNC 138 as clearly almost i mean i of course i don't see it as inspired at all right i don't mm -hmm. i see him as a false prophet i see it as a false priesthood a false church false everything um but you can see it's his hope and in that hope jesus does what he can't even go visit the prison and he sends missionaries to hopefully teach knowledge and then people to respond and by their own works maybe one day make it yep that's not hope um, it's certainly not the hope Jesus taught. It's not the hope he is. That the triune God in his mercy came down to us and said, believe in me, repent, believe in me. And that he has the power to save, not just make salvation possible. He, he is salvation. He doesn't just make exaltation possible. And it's not by our knowing our inner knowing, but by who he is, which is yeah, based on God's knowing of himself. But I just, I don't, I don't know how to land this. I mean, it's to me, it is, this is so raw to me. Yeah. That, that, and I, I hope that the Christian can humanize this issue, but teach with clarity to the LDS yeah. that what Jesus taught, Yep. Which is the night cometh when no man can work. Mm. There is a hell to be feared. Let me 
close just with a couple things. One, I know we didn't get to any particular um, creedal Christian interpretation of these passages. I would just encourage you to go go look stuff up. You, you can find uh, some really solid sources out there. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to go into some of the possibilities just so that all these people who maybe read these things are like, well, you, you didn't even give anything other than what our view says, and our view seems to make the most sense. It's not true. Um, we could walk into some different evangelical interpretations of these passages and, and show you where those ideas come from exegetically and why we would make arguments that the LDS position on their interpretation of this passage is wrong. We don't have time for that right now, but let me just close us with the Westminster confession, chapter 32 of the state of men after death and of the resurrection of the dead. The bodies of men after death returned to return to dust and see corruption but their souls, which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence, immediately return to God who gave them. The souls of the righteous, being then made perfect in holiness, are received into the highest heavens, where they behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness, reserved for the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledgeth none. At the last day, such are found alive shall not die, but be changed, and all the dead shall be raised up with the self-same bodies, and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. The bodies of the unjust shall, by the power of Christ, be raised to dishonor, the bodies of the just by his spirit unto honor and be made comfortable or conformable to his own glorious body. Thanks for sticking with us. We'll be looking at first to third John and Jude next week. We'll see you then.